Welcome back. A few episodes ago, I covered everything going on with the blind side and the Tui family and Michael Orr. Well, the Tuies responded in the media quite shortly after that all went down in August, but now we are in mid-September and they are responding in court. But that is not the only recent court filing. So today we are going to go over the Tuies' response to Michael Orr's petition to terminate the conservatorship and for an accounting. And we're going to go over a demand from Michael Orr for an accounting. For those of you that have followed my coverage of the Britney Spears conservatorship, you will know what a big deal these conservatorship accountings can be. No accounting has ever been done in this conservatorship. It seems that from the entire court file on the conservatorship, that very little was done after the conservatorship was instigated. It was started, it was formed, but then nothing ever happened. Not an accounting, not a filing, nothing. It was formed and then it just sat there. So we will take a look at all of that today and I'll give a brief recap of how we got here. So let's get into it. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Thank you to our sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics. I keep my makeup routine, like the rest of me, pretty basic. (laughs) What I'm not here for is my mascara running down my face when it starts to get cold outside. The Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara stays put. It doesn't run, drip, flake. It is ready for your colder weather adventures. So wonderful that it slides right off at night with warm water. Stays put when you want it to, but still removes easily. And Thrive Cosmetics gives back with every purchase that you make with their Bigger Than Beauty promise. So you know that when you are buying Thrive Cosmetics, you're not just buying something that has healthy, great vegan ingredients that are also cruelty-free, but you're also giving back to one of their over 300 giving partners that make communities better. You have to try Thrive for yourself. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash Lawnard. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Lawnard for 20% off your first order. Let's get back to today's episode. So for those of you that didn't watch the last or listen to the last podcast episode on this topic, I'm going to give a brief road so far. Michael Orr is a professional football player who's retired. He was a college football player and the subject of the movie The Blind Side with Sandra Bullock. His adoptive family is how they had been called in the media, who they say treated him like a son. The Tuies never actually adopted him. And in court filings in August 2023, Michael Orr made a lot of allegations against the Tuies that they took advantage of him by placing him into a conservatorship instead of adopting him, that he believed that he was adopted, that they sold his story and made money off of it, and he doesn't know what else they used his name and rights for. There were a lot of questions about what happened with representation through CAA, which is a very large representation agency that reps a lot of the biggest names in Hollywood. 
And then everything else that's going on with this. Why wasn't there an accounting? Why did Michael Orr not know what was going on? Were they selling the rights to his name and likeness? And then there were some other questions about it with, were they selling the rights to his name and likeness? Because he published several books. He seems to have also talked about his story. There's no indication that any of those things had been blocked. So heartbreaking allegations made by Michael Orr about the conservatorship and not adoption. And then shortly thereafter, we saw the Tui family firing back in the media, alleging that Michael Orr was trying to shake them down, their words, to the media in a statement from their attorney for $15 million and that he had threatened to plant negative stories about them in the media if they did not acquiesce to that request. And that is where the court proceedings find us now. The first uh, filing I'm going to get into is a motion to compel the accounting. Remember, Michael Tuohy's motion was not just for a termination of the conservatorship, which seems that it will be easy to do. The Tuohy family has said in the media that they have no objection to ending the conservatorship, and it seems that no one's actually acting as if this conservatorship is active. No one's interceding and stopping him from contracting on his own or stopping him from living his life, really. So that part shouldn't be hard. The accounting, I think, is going to be much more interesting because getting to the heart of what happened with these contracts regarding the movie The Blind Side is something I'm very interested in. I hope you're very interested in it, too. You have to let me know because I'm very curious. Were the rights to his name and likeness sold without his authorization? I That's a very big allegation and a very potentially big problem. So I have a lot of questions especially when it comes to him contracting. And we're going to see some of the answers to those questions from the TUI's perspective in their response. So let's get into the motion to compel first. This motion to compel the accounting was filed on August 21st by Michael Orr's attorneys. It's five pages long, and we're just going to go through exactly what they're asking for by way of an accounting. What was alleged in the petition to terminate was that the Tuohy's had benefited off of Michael Orr's story that they had sold it and not shared in the proceeds with him. That is the allegation. And now we are seeing this motion to compel where the court forces an accounting to be done. Here is the statements in their motion as follows. A conservatorship order was entered on December 7th, 2004, appointing Sean Tuohy and Leanne Tuohy as co-conservators of Michael Orr, ward and petitioner. As part of the petition, co-conservators were granted, quote, all powers of attorney to act on the ward's behalf and that the said Michael Jerome William Jr. should not be allowed to enter into any contracts or bind himself without the direct approval of his guardians slash conservators. Co-conservators are subject to statutory requirement, including but not limited to the following. Co-conservators were required to file with the court a sworn interim accounting within 30 days following the six-month anniversary of their appointment citing the Tennessee Code. Each year thereafter, co-conservators are required to file with the court a sworn annual accounting within 60 days after the 12-month anniversary of the date. This is not dissimilar to California's. It's after the close of the year. There is a period of time to file the accounting in the conservatorship, and it should be done. It seems that this conservatorship never had any conservatorship estate. Like, there was no money in it. It says here that the co-conservators have failed to file the first accounting and have failed to timely file a single accounting for the last 19 years. This court has never granted an extension of time for doing so. 
Nobody seems to have forced the issue. It's so strange. How does this go for 19 years and nobody does anything? It's just, does the court just forget that it exists in their courtroom? Like, how is there nothing that tracks this? It goes on to say the court may waive the financial accountings if it makes a finding based on an on evidence presented at a hearing that doing so would be in the best interest of the minor or person with a disability. However, in this matter, the record is clear that the court never made any such findings. No one went to court ever. No one went to court ever. There's nothing on the record. There's the beginning of the conservatorship and then the docket is silent until now. There's nothing there. And generally dockets will show if something is filed but sealed so you'll at least see its existence on the docket, even if you can't access it. But there's none of that either. It says, pursuant to statute, when conservators fail to timely file an accounting, quote, the clerk shall promptly notify the fiduciary and the fiduciary attorney of record. If after notice the accounting has not been filed 30 days thereafter, the clerk shall cite the fiduciary to appear on a date certain and render the accounting. Upon failure to appear as cited, the fiduciary shall be summoned to appear before the court and show cause why the fiduciary should not be held in contempt. And it seems like none of that happened. This whole thing is so, this whole conservatorship is so strange. And I am beginning to wonder more and more and more if this was just to circumvent or primarily to circumvent NC2A rules or NCAA rules. Uh, Was this really so he could just play football at Old Miss and they could say we did it on the up and up and we didn't have undue influence on him even though we're massive boosters of old miss and that would run afoul of the rules at the time is that what the, did is this really just a sham conservatorship to appease the sports governing body because nothing was done and how is the clerk's office not just being like hey maybe a filing where are you how does the court never even inquire what is the court doing It goes on to say, as required under Tennessee Code 34-1-111, co-conservators are required to itemize the receipts and expenditures made during the period covered by the accounting, as well as the property held by the fiduciary at the end of the accounting period. Co-conservators must make the statutory required accounting through the court clerk, which would include disclosures of income generated by any contract entered on his behalf or regarding the ward income generated from their self-generated use of his name, likeness, image, or any income generated from their relationship with the ward more generally. That's all reasonable. I'm very, very confused as to why none of it was done, though. It goes on to say co-conservators' failure to uphold their fiduciary duty to make any accountings with the court throughout the 19-year conservatorship means that Ward was excluded from knowing the full extent of any contracts negotiated on his behalf by his co-conservators, that he has no knowledge of the income generated through said contracts, and that he has no knowledge of the income generated from co-conservators' use of his name, likeness, and image. I would only add, if any. That's not in their allegations. But for me, I'm reading this going, if any exist. And now I want to know where all the contracts are. But they've also subpoenaed CAA and others. So at least they're using the power of the court to try to get information. But this information is 19 years old or could be up to 19 years old. So they're going to have to go dig back through and try to find 
these contracts. It goes on to say the only assets the ward possessed when his conservatorship order was entered were his great ability as a football player, which he had already been widely publicized throughout the United States, and the obvious enormous potential that such fame had created to allow him to profit from his name, image, and life story. Instead of protecting that asset and ensuring that the ward received the full benefits therefrom, the co-conservators took this asset and have used it to enrich themselves at ward's expense. I'm very curious if they signed contracts on his behalf that he didn't know about. Because if they signed contracts on his behalf, generally he would have to perform something, except for like the movie The Blind Side, which he clearly knew about. I have a, I just have a lot of questions about how I don't, I don't think, how do I phrase this well? I think it's clear they've all profited off of his story, the Tui family. I don't know how he has profited off his story with regard to the movie or not. He's alleging or not. I think the Tui family continued to profit off of it, but it's clear that they profited off of other things as well. Um, and we're already well off when this all started, which means maybe to me morally, Michael Orr should have been the one profiting off of his story more than the Tui family. Um, just thinking out loud here, seeing that it's they are a part of his story, but at the core, it is his story. So I'm very curious about how much they profited how much he profited, if at all, and if they continued to profit directly off of his name and likeness, because clearly they profited indirectly, right, by the rise of their name, their status, their story, um, and them being known beyond. But what this also brings up to me, they're stating that his abilities as a football player were already widely publicized throughout the country. What did the court know at the time this was all going down? Because the court waived the need for a guardian ad litem, even though uh, Michael Orr was over the age of 18, entering into this conservatorship. He wasn't a minor, and he doesn't seem to be a person who is disabled in a way that would warrant a conservatorship. So how did this all happen anyway? And did the judge know about his football prowess? I mean, I'm guessing yes. And how much did the judge know? And did the judge go to Old Miss? I have questions about how all this got pushed through the court in the first place and why in the early 2000s, people are just like, conservatorship seems to be the way to do this. It's not what it's meant for. It goes on to say after it alleges that the co-conservators were taking advantage of or for their own benefit to say, for example, the co-conservators have used their ward's name, likeness, and image to benefit their own interests, falsely claiming that he is their adopted son as part of their marketing and business ventures. So using this story from, from the blind side, from the book and from elsewhere to continue to benefit their own interests. The ward has never permitted them to use his name, likeness, and image in any way and has made multiple requests that such usage cease. This might have to go into civil litigation outside of this conservatorship. Some of the allegations they're making are going to go beyond an accounting. And I wonder if part of why they are seeking the accounting is to see if they might want to bring um, civil litigation. Of course, with a conservatorship this long that's never had an accounting, there's a right to have an accounting. 
but it might also facilitate civil litigation if that's warranted. It goes on to say that co-conservators nevertheless have ignored his request and continue to use his name, likeness, and image. Whether co-conspirators granted themselves unfettered access to using their ward's name, likeness, and image by virtue of their co-conservator status and any income generated therefrom must be disclosed as part of the accounting. In 2006, the co-conservators negotiated a contract on the ward's behalf concerning the blind side evolution of a game movie with 20th Century Fox. The co-conservators never presented the ward with any written documentation to show any earnings they derive from the movie. Their ward has been kept in the dark, forced to rely on the verbal assurances of co-conservators. Because co-conservators flagrantly disregarded their statutory and fiduciary duties, and apparently the court didn't care to pursue it, for over 19 years, the ward requests a first accounting be conducted in an expedited fashion no later than 14 days from the filing of this motion. Woof. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if you're going to get a conservatorship accounting in 14 days. I I appreciate the putting putting the the urgency under it, but I don't know if that's going to happen. It goes on to say, in addition, the ward requests that the court allow discovery for a period of 180 days following the filing of co-conservators' first ever accounting so that the ward may examine the account and thereafter a jury trial be had within 90 days on all disputed issues of fact. Um, the court has not ruled on this yet. Again, this was filed August 21st. Let us now look at the TUI response to the original petition. It's not responding to this motion to compel the accounting. I'm sure a response to that will be forthcoming. This is the motion, this is the response to the motion to terminate the conservatorship from the TUI attorneys. Thank you to Green Chef for always making my dinner time a little bit easier and hopefully yours too. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company. They deliver everything you need to make delicious meals to your door and you can pick from a wide variety of meals that fit every type of lifestyle from paleo and keto to vegan and vegetarian to just healthy, balanced meals. In September, they have over 80 weekly menu options from things that are nutritionist approved to foodie approved so you can branch out your taste buds. We all know that the fall gets super busy, so make it easy on yourself. Get your ingredients and recipes delivered to your door and meals you can make in just about 30 minutes. So take advantage of this 60% off deal. Go to greenchef.com slash 60emilybaker for 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash 60emilybaker. Use code 60EMILYBAKER to get 60% off and free shipping. Thank you, Green Chef, for sponsoring another episode. Go find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Let's get back to today's episode. This was filed on September 14th, 2023 at 2.14 p.m. Central Standard Time with the Clerk of Court. For those of you watching on YouTube, a lot of you will see the watermarking on this. This is watermarking made by the court showing that this is not an official certified record from the court. This is downloaded through the court's document system. So they watermark everything. I've never seen another court that is watermarked quite like this. So if you're looking at this going, what is this? It, it seems that the court, if you're going to use records from the court in court, you need to go to the clerk's office, 
grab a certified copy, not the digital copy to use. So that is why we are seeing all of the watermarking on this, but I pull them from the court system. Comes now respondent Sean Tui and wife Leanne Tui and respondent and responds to the petition to terminate conservatorship for accounting and other relief that would show unto the court the following. Number one, admitted. So let's take a minute to talk about responses real quick. When they are saying number one, admitted, they are lining out each paragraph of Michael Orr's petition. So they're not going to repeat or retype all of it. But for our purposes, I might switch between the two. So in Michael Orr's petition, number one is the background detail. Michael Jerome Orr, now 37, grew up in Memphis, Shelby County, Tennessee, and then it goes through his whole background. And they're saying, yes, that's accurate. We That is his background. Their response for number two says, respondents can neither admit nor deny the allegations of paragraph two, but would demand strict proof thereof if their rights are to be affected. Footnote two is saying that, you know, a man named Tony Henderson, a friend of Michael's, witnessed him and got him into the school. And they're saying, we don't have any personal knowledge of that. We can't admit nor deny, but we'd want proof of it if it impacted this. Paragraph three, respondents would admit the petitioner was selected to participate in the Tennessee All-Star All-State game his senior year. The balance of the allegations in paragraph three are admitted. Paragraph four, admitted in part, denied in part. The respondents are without sufficient information to respond to the last sentence of paragraph four. It is admitted the petitioner stayed in different people's homes overnight on occasion. So now, of course, what do you want to see? What do I want to see? The last sentence of paragraph four. The last sentence of paragraph four in the petition is, he often stayed overnight at the homes of classmates whose parents saw Michael simply as an intelligent, polite young man who needed the basic support that no person, agency, or other social system had been able to provide Michael for most of his childhood. And they're saying we can't respond to that. We don't know if that's what other people thought. Paragraph five. Respondents would show unto the court that the petitioner resided in their home at least on a part-time basis in January of 2004. They vehemently deny that they saw the petitioner as a gullible young man whose athletic talent could be exploited for their own benefit. The respondents admit that they never intended to, and in fact never did, take any action to assume legal custody through the juvenile court system of Shelby County, Tennessee. Paragraph six, admitted in part, denied in part. The respondents admit that they invited petitioner to live in their home, but this took place prior to July of 2004. They vehemently deny that they told petitioner that they intended to legally adopt him. Clearly, the respondents loved the petitioner and as a result provided him with shelter, food, and clothing, and in fact bought him more than one vehicle for his personal use. The respondents consider the petitioner as a part of their family, and over time, petitioner referred to respondents as mom and dad, and the respondents occasionally referred to the petitioner as a son. In fact, they have always felt that the petitioner was like a son and have used that on occasion, but not in a legal sense. Further, the efforts to open a conservatorship only began as a result of petitioner's opportunity to play college football. So they did start the conservatorship because the NCAA had thoughts 
issues and a full-ass investigation. Now I want to go back to the NCAA investigation. I don't have time to do that in this episode, but I'm real, cu- I'm real curious about the investigation. Okay, so they say in their legal response that they referred to him on occasion as son, but not in the legal sense. And further, the efforts to open a conservatorship. I mean, obviously the efforts were successful because he's the conservatorship is still on the books. The efforts to open a conservatorship only began as a result of petitioner's opportunity to play college football. There was never an intent to adopt him. They say when it became clear that petitioner could not consider going to the University of Mississippi, Old Miss, as a result of living with respondents, the NCAA made it clear that the only way he could attend Old Miss if he was part of the Tui family in some fashion. Conservatorship was the tool chosen to accomplish this goal. I don't even think this man legally qualifies for a conservatorship. So either you put him in a conservatorship so he can go to Old Miss, which is your alma mater, or you adopt him, which they legally could have done. It probably would have been more expensive and taken more time and had more impact potentially for them um, in what legal rights or might have been granted. So they're just like, we'll just put him in a conservatorship. That seems reasonable. How did the court allow this to happen? And again, is this all just to circumvent the rules of college football? And it seems like maybe yes. We, we're we're going to have to go back to, we're going to have to go look at this this investigation. And how was the NCAA just like, Okay, cool. You live with you live with donors of the university, and then they put you in a conservatorship, and then it's like, fine. Gosh, I have so many more questions. I have so many more questions. But there it is in this petition. They instigated the conservatorship so that he could consider playing football at Old Miss. Everyone was recruiting him. Why Ole Miss? I I really wonder what Orr's feelings about this are now, about whether he really chose to go to Ole Miss because that's where his family went, or whether he felt coerced into going to Ole Miss. They go on to say in paragraph seven, the respondents admit the petitioner did move into their home. The remaining allegations of paragraph seven are denied, in fact, and then they're taking the time to explain more. They could just say are denied. They're choosing to respond more. What's funny is I haven't seen any coverage of this as so happens, as so often happens in legal cases where the initial allegations are what's covered and then everyone moves on and other things happen in the world and um, everyone moves on from the story except for us. We're just like, wait, what happened to that? We need to go back. There's probably a response. So it's interesting that they're also taking the opportunity in this filing, and I'm not surprised that they are, to tell their version of the events paragraph by paragraph. So it goes on to say the remaining allegations of paragraph seven are denied. In fact, the statement regarding petitioner's discovery that he was not adopted was in February 2023 is demonstratively false. His 2011 book, I Beat the Odds, clearly indicates that he was fully aware that the Tuies were appointed as conservators. In fact, the Tuies were appointed by order of the court on December 7th, 2004, as conservators of the person. It would be very interesting to see them quote the book in here. I wish that they would have. 
if we're if we're using books as the but you said this, I really wish it was placed in there. But the comment section under the podcast where I last covered this, a lot of you pointed out he said in his book that it was a conservatorship, not an adoption. And I said, I'm going to have to now do an NCAA investigation and read the book. Um, lots of books coming up lately in legal filings, aren't they? So they're also taking this opportunity to say, well, it. he said in his book in 2011 that he was aware that it was a conservatorship. That doesn't change what happened at the inception of the conservatorship. It doesn't change whether he knew he was getting into a conservatorship and all the impact. It does change him saying, I just discovered this in February 2023, if he talked about it in 2011. But also, why is it still in place? Going on to paragraph eight, it says paragraph eight is denied. The conservatorship was formed for the sole purpose of giving the petitioner an opportunity to choose to go to the school of his choice, including Old Miss. In fact, the Tuies never signed any contract for the petitioner, including the hiring and or firing of various sports agents, his professional football contracts, or any other businesses that he may have had over the course of time. The respondents may or may not have been required to sign scholarship papers when he attended Old Miss. So they are saying they never exercised the ability to sign contracts on his behalf. That will be interesting to see. Paragraph nine, they say admitted in part and denied in part. The respondents admit that various websites may have referred to the petitioner as an adopted son. The Tuies, when referring to Michael as a son, was done so in the colloquial sense, and they have never intended that reference to be viewed with legal implication. The respondents vehemently deny that any of those representations cause any irreparable harm, loss, either past, present, or future, or damages to the petitioner. I'm going to let you tell me what you think about them responding and when they chose or chose not to to refer to Michael Orr as their son and whether or not that reference benefited them, even if it was in the colloquial sense and not meant to be viewed with legal implication. It was meant to be viewed with some kind of an implication. Otherwise, they would have referred to him as Michael. Paragraph 10, the respondents vehemently deny the allegations in paragraph 10, which makes me very, very curious as to what paragraph 10 is. Paragraph 10 says, quote, the lie of Michael's adoption is one upon which co-conservators Leanne Tui and Sean Tui have enriched themselves at the expense of their ward, the undersigned Michael Orr. Michael Orr discovered this lie to his chagrin and embarrassment in February of 2023, when he learned that the conservatorship to which he consented on the basis that doing so would make him a member of the Tui family, in fact, provided him no familial relation with the Tuis. And that is what paragraph 10 said. Paragraph 11, they say admitted. Paragraph 12, denied. They say respondents signed but never negotiated any contract with 20th Century Fox or others. Any arrangements regarding the movie The Blind Side were done and through Michael Lewis, the author of the book, The Blind Side. I have so many questions. So what did they sign? They're saying they signed a contract, but they didn't negotiate the contract, that the author of the book negotiated the contract. But what did they sign? They had to sign their rights somehow. As in paragraph 13, they say denied. Respondents received a portion of the money paid to Michael Lewis, which was something less than $225,000. 
paragraph 14, and they have said that in media reports right after this went down as well. Paragraph 14, these respondents can neither admit nor deny the allegations in paragraph 14, but would demand strict proof thereof if rights are affected. The insinuation that petitioner's signature was signed by the TUIs is vehemently denied. The respondents had nothing to do with petitioner's contract regarding the blind side. In fact, Mr. Lewis was in the process of selling the blind side. The family met regarding the distribution of any proceeds from the movie. The petitioner was likewise included in this meeting. All of the TUI family, including petitioner, agreed to this arrangement where each party would get 20% of the proceedings. So they're saying, again, all of the proceeds from the movie came through the book author. And the book, book author said that they, each party would get 20% of the proceeds paid to the book author is how I'm interpreting that. Michael Orr is saying that he did not get paid. Let's go look at his paragraph 14 in the petition. Paragraph 14 says a contract also exists entitled Life Story Rights Agreement, purportedly signed by Michael Orr on April 20th, 2007, in which Michael Orr appears to give away to Fox without any payment whatsoever the perpetual, unconditional, exclusive right throughout the world to use and portray Michael Orr's name, likeness, voice, appearance, personality, personal experiences, incidents, situations, and events based upon or taken from Michael Orr's life story in connection with the motion picture. I wonder, based on that language, looking back through this again, if Michael Orr's attorneys have a copy of that contract. Because no one's just remembering all those terms of a contract. They're just not. So I have to wonder if they actually have access to that particular contract. The response goes on in paragraph 15 to say these allegations regarding the signature of quote-unquote Michael Orr being obtained by forgery, trickery, or otherwise are vehemently denied. Remember, the petition alleged that they may have forged his signature on a contract. Paragraph 16, they say, admitted, the allegation fails to recognize that agreements were entered into during such a time as petitioner was a college athlete. Subsequent to the petitioner finishing his eligibility at Old Miss, the respondents approached the petitioner and indicated they could rearrange the funds to be paid from the movie to be sent directly to him, which would have required petitioner to take some action. He was happy with the arrangements and told respondents to leave arrangements as they were. Ah, that's more sidestepping of the NCAA rules. It, the NCAA rules have changed a number of years back to allow college athletes to make money while they are college athletes. But those rules were very strict and finite um, prior to that change. So if he was still playing football while this was negotiated, it seems that what the respondents, the Tuies, are alleging is that they took the money from the movie. Michael Orr signed a petition saying he was getting none of the money from the movie because he was still playing football, but his petition says that this all went down after his eligibility period had ended, and after his eligibility period had ended, there would be no need to, like, funnel or launder the money through the TUIs so that the NCAA wouldn't think that he's being paid in some way um, that violates their rules. But he had said that this all happened after his eligibility period. They are saying this was entered into while he was still an athlete, which leads me to one question. So Michael Orr played at Old Miss from 2005 to 2008. He played 2005 to 2008. 
he the movie came out in 2009. So the movie came out after his eligibility period was ended. However, it would have likely necessitated the contracts being signed within that period because movies take a long time to get made. So it seems to me that he might have signed it during the eligibility period, but since it was money based on proceeds from the movie, he wouldn't have been entitled to any of those monies to, to till 2009. So it might have actually been an NCAA gray zone, but, and that's why they arranged it that Michael Orr was signing the contract for no money and then they were going to get the money and funnel it to him. It's so wild to me. Absolutely wild to me. When, when did the book come out? What's so interesting is that the book, The Blind Side, was originally published in September of 2006. So in September of 2006, this book comes out. How quickly are they talking about a movie deal for this book? It seems pretty fast for the movie to turn around and come out by 2009. Because the book comes out while he's in college. Interesting. The timeline on this is very interesting because there are definitely layers of NCAA rules that are going to be a problem here. That doesn't mean that everything the Tuies are saying in their response is true, but it might explain why the contracts read the way they read, which is strange. It's strange that the contract's being alleged to read that he's taking no payment, but this might have been why. But the book was still written by a family friend of theirs. And the only reason they had access, I would assume, to his story is because of the Tuies. However, the author of the book wrote other books in the sports world. It's not as if he's kind of a random. You know, he he wrote other, other sports-based stories. Um, I believe Moneyball being one of them, which also got a movie contract. So I think we're going to find the truth somewhere in the middle with regard to with regard to these contracts potentially signed while he was still playing at old miss and executed or at least the money coming in after his eligibility period ended we have to look at the investigation then at some point let me know if you want to look into the ncaa investigation i have more questions now i need a timeline graph and I need to know what the court's going to do with this. All right, paragraph 17. The respondents would admit that they received $200,000 donation to their foundation. Likewise, the petitioner had an opportunity to receive the exact same amount of money, $200,000 to be placed in a foundation or the charity of his choice. In fact, such a foundation was created by Deborah Brandon. There's also been a, a subpoena sent to Deborah Brandon and all of this. That was the attorney. But the petitioner failed to take the necessary action to initiate the foundation despite the recommendations of respondents and Miss Brannon. I have a whole bunch of questions. Um, I wonder if I'm personally offended by this paragraph because I'm so ADHD. Like, there's probably something about me that makes me feel attacked with the petitioner failed to take the necessary action to initiate the foundation while the petitioner was what in his first year at the NFL or his last year in college? Like when would you have liked him to set up this entire foundation and what action did you need him to initiate saying yet? 
I have questions. 18, the respondents would rely on the order. The order speaks for itself. That's regarding the order for the conservatorship. 19, respondents stand ready, willing, and able to terminate the conservatorship by consent at any time. They said this in the media, and they're saying this again now. Terminate the conservatorship, fine. The big fight's going to be over in accounting. Paragraph 20, they admit. Paragraph 21, they admit, and then continue on saying, these respondents would further show unto the court that the petitioner has never made any request to terminate the conservatorship, either in writing or orally. Well, you haven't terminated it either, and no one's filed anything in court. They go on to say respondents admit they never filed accountings. In fact, respondents were appointed as conservator of the person with no estate or assets. Therefore, the court has never required any accountings. No notices have ever been issued by the clerk of court requiring any accounting. And as I said in the last podcast, and I've pulled up now on screen for those of you on the YouTubes, the order appointing the conservator of the person is the order. It appoints them to be in charge of making contracts for him, but it does not state anything about an estate or placing them as conservators of the estate, but it gives them the power to contract and to make medical decisions. Specifically, it says, it further appears to the court that it is in Orr's best interest to appoint the Tuies as conservators of the person and that they should have all powers of attorney to act on his behalf and further that Orr shall not be allowed to enter into any contracts or bind himself without the direct approval of his conservators. But then if there's any money made, where does it get attributed to? And then it goes on for the medical decision rights. We need to finish up this response, but first we need one final word from our show sponsor. Y'all know how much I love fall and it is sweater weather season. But one of the things that I hate about layering is when my bra is uncomfortable. It it just, it throws off the layering. You cannot layer properly with ill-fitting underpinnings. And today's sponsor, Honey Love, as you covered. Honey Love's best-selling crossover bra is so comfortable, it's sure to be your new go-to. This bra gives all the support of traditional bras without any underwire. Plus, the mesh detail adds a little touch of sexy or looks great under your sweater. And the bras don't give you that weird uniboob look, which also doesn't feel good under your fall favorites. If you are ready to try Honey Love, don't just check out their bras. They have you covered in every category of shapewear that you could need. And their sleepwear is really fantastic. So treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and take 20% off at honeylove.com slash lawnard. Use our exclusive link down below, honeylove.com slash lawnard to get 20% off your order. It's time to be in our comfy clothes with our comfy bras. Thanks to Honey Love. Let's get back to today's episode. So the two ways are saying, look, because there's no conservatorship of the estate, there's no estate to account for. No accountings are required because there's no estate to account for. And they're saying that they did not benefit from contracting on his behalf, which means that this will likely get bounced out of the conservatorship court and potentially need to go to just a civil action instead of inside the conservatorship. I could see the court denying everything and just terminating this conservatorship, being like, nothing's happened. There's no estate. We're done. Go, go sue over it in civil court. They go on in 23 to 
deny the allegations and demand strict proof. Same with 24. In 25, they say they're ready to terminate the conservatorship by consent. They respond the same way to paragraph 26. 27, they say they deny, and they say respondents do not have the knowledge or information to admit or deny the rest of the allegations. Respondents would state to the court that the conservatorship was necessary to satisfy the requirements of the NCAA so that petitioner could consider attending Old Miss if that was the school of his choice. So that's where that's where we're at. That's where we're at. This was all set up so that if he wanted to go to Old Miss, he could go to Old Miss and the NCAA wouldn't throw a fit about it. They still did an investigation, but wouldn't throw a fit about it. On 29, they say respondents are without information to allege or deny and would demand strict proof. They go on to say the respondents would go on to say, damn it. (laughs) I say they go on to say, and then the filing says they would go on to say, oh, it's like lawception at the moment. The respondents would go on to say that all funds received from the movie The Blind Side have been equally divided among the respondents, their two children, and the petitioner. It's important to note the petitioner's share was paid to respondents who paid the taxes due on these funds for some period of time, but still cut a check for the full share to petitioner. Oh, so they've got to slide in a little bit of a dig there and be like, well, we took the tax hit and then we paid him the full 20% without taxes. Really? In paragraph 28, which I seem to have skipped over as I was scrolling, um, it goes on to say, respondents would state unto the court that they have always acted in the best interest of petitioner and respondents were appointed as conservators of the person, reiterating that there was not an estate here like there is in the conservatorship of Britney Spears, which we've covered very much, the conservatorship of the person and the estate. They go on to say they deny that they breached any duties to petitioner. They deny um, that there's any need for injunctive relief. To It was requested that they, you know, keep his name out of their mouth and stop using his name, stop referring to him as son. And they're like, there's no need for an injunction on that. And that is their entire um, response. And of course, this is signed by Tennessee attorneys, not the California attorneys who we saw making statements on their behalf. I do appreciate that the law firm is Ballin' Ballin' and Fishman um, just as a point of my own amusement. Because sometimes there are lawyer names that I quite like, like Judge Judge. Uh, Ballin' Ballin' and Fishman. I don't know what... I'm sorry, Fishman. I, I don't know how great of a lawyer you are. I don't know anything about you. But I feel like Ballin and Ballin maybe just needed to to remain on its own. I appreciate that they made Mr. Fishman a partner. Couldn't have been Fishman, Ballin and Ballin. (laughs) I have so many thoughts about this law firm name, which is not really what we're here for. But when we're talking about cases that feel heavy, there is definitely times that I need just a moment of of, uh, comic relief. And Ballin and Ballin has has been that moment for me in this episode. This story, all of it doesn't sit right with me. This is clear as mud at the moment. There are very divergent allegations on either side of this story. And I really have to ask myself where, where we're finding what happened in the middle and really was all of this to skirt the NCAA rules, and did Michael Orr get hosed 
by the TUIs in that process? Or were these monies paid out? Was there more of a contract? Could discovery of what the contract with 20th Century Fox, could that resolve this? Showing him the contract and being like, this is what happened. Would some transparency help here? And what what changed? Because if it's true that in his book, he states that he knew it was a conservatorship in 2011, what happened between 2011 and now that has so diametrically changed this family so that they can't interact with each other in a transparent way? What has gone wrong here where Michael Orr clearly feels that he he was not treated with fairness and transparency. Um, and the Tui family is saying, no, we treated it with fairness and transparency. Based on these filings, I'm very much wondering if because there's no estate, if the court will order or can order an accounting because there was no estate to be held, or if he's going to have to sue um essentially for an accounting, which can be done. We've we've seen it in the Motley Crue case most recently where you can sue and demand an accounting. Or if the statute of limitations on that might have passed, if he did say in his book that he discovered this or knew of this in 2011, are we too far outside the statute of limitations for any civil redress because of how old um, the action taken was in some types of fraud cases, you go from the date of discovery. But if it's in the book in 2011, we're pretty far afield at this point in 2023 from that. And maybe that's why he's choosing to try to pursue it in this way through the still standing conservatorship, because there may well not be civil remedy due to statute of limitations if this court just closes the conservatorship, doesn't grant an accounting, and moves on. You guys know that I film a lot of our podcast episodes live with our wonderful members. So some of the questions come from the members who are behind the scenes as I'm recording the episode. This one comes from Carrie Ann saying, should the NCAA allow people under conservatorship to play football at all? This raises a really good question, similar to the questions we see in like the Britney Spears conservatorship. If you are properly under a legal conservatorship, being able to work in some fashion, play football in some fashion, attend a competitive four-year university seems to be outside of what's needed because you are caring for yourself, taking care of your personal needs, able to maintain personal hygiene. You are not um, needing someone to care for you and make those decisions for you in the way that a conservatorship is traditionally done. And if all of this was really to get a power of attorney, why didn't they just get a power of attorney over contracts? Why a conservatorship, including medical decision-making? It's a really great great question. And no, the NCAA shouldn't be allowing people under conservatorships to play football if people aren't able to take care of themselves. I don't think they would be in a position where they're able to play football. But the same to be said about Britney Spears. If someone cannot care for themselves, can they perform a Vegas residency and, and be on multiple television shows? Probably not. SD said in one of his books, he stated he knew it was a conservatorship. Can that be used against him in court? We're seeing that be used against him in court. I'm I'm slightly confused that they didn't quote the book exactly or include a photocopy of it. But yes, um, it will be used to call his statements into question. But it is 
not um, a statement where there's veracity because it's a book. You can kind of say whatever. But again, it's going to show that he talked about the fact that he was aware in 2011, not 2023. So yes, it will come up. Shan in the chat said, I think we need a deeper dive into this case. So many questions. I think we have to look at the NCAA investigation to start to answer some of those questions and see if really the point of all of this was to just end run the NCAA. But that's not what Michael Orr is alleging. He's alleging that this was all done to defraud him and to make money off of his name, image, likeness, and story. I would love to know all of your thoughts on this case down below. The allegations are stunning here. The Tuies are responding with vehement denials and an admission that this was done because of the rules with regard to football eligibility and the NCAA. Because, you know, you can't ever forget what big money football is in the U.S. and in the college football scene, something that college athletes were not able to participate in until very recently. With all of that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. Let's say it together. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May you not accidentally end up camping where there is no Wi-Fi and cell service, even though you were pretty sure there was going to be, and then you ended up actually camping camping when that was not at all what you intended. What did I say? May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your family be well. May you not think about the Roman Empire every day, or maybe you do. <laughs> and may the odds be ever in your favor. Law Nerd, I will talk to you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at The Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Law Nerd. <laughs>